Ryan Stanton here with ASEP Frontline, joined today by Dr. Al Sacchetti, one of our originals, actually one of the first people I ever knew in uh, ASEP through the communications side of things. Uh, but we're bringing him here today at ASEP 22 as part of our discussions on pediatric emergency medicine. And we're going to cover a couple of topics here while we are here. And that's going to involve the difficult airway and something that's right down the alley of the listeners here. That's managing the critical, uh, critical child, uh, critical illness in a community setting. So outside most of the confines of these academic settings and where honestly most of us work. So uh, give us, let's start off, um, give us a little breakdown on some of the challenges we're facing with that pediatric airway. I think one of the things that's changed dramatically, Ryan, is um, the number of children that we wind up intubating has dropped dramatically with the introduction of a couple of things. One is the um, non-invasive ventilations with the BiPAP and the CPAP, but the one that's made a huge difference is the um, uh, high-flow nasal cannulas. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that really, really has changed dramatically what's going on with the kids with bronchiolitis, kids with asthma. You know, a lot of those kids in the past we wound up intubating, now we're just putting them on this and watching them, and then the kids are pulling through on their own. Uh, so we're really avoiding more intubations, more airway problems than we are uh, trying to solve them. It, it's, it's fascinating to see what happened over the last couple of years uh, with the introduction of the high flow systems. Yeah, it was. It's it really is amazing. It seems like with airway management, we started you know started with nothing and got the back end solution with everything with intubation and crikes and those sort of things. And the most recent technology has really filled in that gap in the middle to where we're not making these huge steps like, you know, just cranking up my nasal cannula or putting on a mask, venti mask or whatever, and then, oh crap, that's not working, let's go straight to. And of course now a lot of that data, a lot of the best data is through uh, our friends at, uh, is, is, is through the pediatric population with regard to high flow. So, you know, we wanna make sure that, uh, that, that it's a great population to, to work with it and um, especially with RSV season coming around the corner. Um, we're already seeing for us, I mean, a lot of places are already seeing RSV, a lot of already seeing human metanumavirus. Um, but of course, we'll expect this year that our seasons will be more of our baselines with the flu and RSV and everything like that. So we're getting right up on it. And so that consideration and that comfort level of having access to high flow and non-invasive devices in the emergency department. Yeah, I think the, the other thing is um, it really played a role when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we were seeing the RSVs in, in the uh, off season, and the um, that we were, you know the, the flu, you know nothing matched up at all. Uh, so now all of a sudden, we had these kids that came in, you know, in June and July that looked, oh, damn, that kid looks like RSV, and it's like, nah, it can't be, and sure it was. Uh, and then these kids really, really respond well uh, to this, and I think any shop that doesn't use it. Uh, really has to take a step back and look at it. We actually use it a lot in adults, too. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the interesting things that is I frequently wind up talking to people who go, well, you know, the, the, the randomized controlled trials aren't there. And there are some, and there's enough there to support it. But it's one of those things where you look at it and you go, this kid I've seen 100 times before, and 100 times before they did poorly. I put them on this, and all of a sudden they don't do poorly. I don't need a randomized controlled trial to tell me this stuff works. I mean, people all say, oh, well, you know, you're, you're just biased because you want it to work. The nurses who have no bias at all go, that kid looks great. You know, so there's clearly a, a, uh, a clinical portion of this where if you practice emergency medicine and you've seen a lot of kids and you've seen a lot of adults, you know how that story is going to end. 
and it doesn't end that way when you use the high flow systems. Yeah, so what are some of the uh, uh, challenges, mistakes, pearls, and pitfalls that we're seeing, uh, that we're experiencing right now with pediatric airway management? The, the biggest thing is that um, we delay. Uh, we see people, it's like, you know, this kid's going down a pathway that's not going to end well. And everybody's always hesitant to, you know, to, to pull that final trigger, you know. They'll put them on the high flow, but then it, it's clear it's not working. The kid's getting tired. And at some point, you know they're going to wind up on a vent, but we wait and we wait and we wait. And I think the biggest problem is you delay too long, you make everything worse for yourself. So you've got that kid that you've thrown everything at. You know, you've given them, it's a bad asthmatic. You've given them steroids. You put them on the, the high flow. That, that didn't work. You put them on the... Um, um, CPAP or BiPAP, whichever your favorite is, and that's not working, and the kid's getting more tired. The time to do the intubation, pull the trigger and do it, is when the kid's pH is 7.2 something, and their CO2 maybe up in the 60, 70 range. But if you wait too long, now you've got a kid with a pH of 6.9, a PCO2 of 100, and if the airway is in any way difficult, the intubation's in any way difficult, now you've got a kid that's really, really, really acidotic, has got no reserve, and that's the kid that winds up with the cardiac arrest when you, you know, stick the laryngoscope in the back of the throat. I, I think you don't want to wait. You know, when it's really evident to you that this kid's not turning around, you know, we should really pull the trigger. It's different if you're in a tertiary care center where you know, the, the, the pulmonologists say, oh my God, don't intubate the asthmatic until the very last minute. That's fine if you can ship them upstairs to where there is six people, seven people, who can intubate this kid, and you know they all watch him carefully. But when you're in a, an ED, especially in an ED when you're there by yourself, um, you don't have that option. So you've got to kind of anticipate which way this thing's going, uh, and jump in a little bit ahead of time. Don't wait until you've got the kid that's just used up all the last bit of reserve, and then you try and, and put a, a tongue blade back behind them, and that's the last straw, and they go into arrest on you. So, you know, we, we, we kind of mentioned both ways there because we are uh, avoiding intubations a lot more than we used to, yeah. but it still needs to be a tool that you jump at when, that it, when that's clearly indicated, you know, not, not wasting that time uh, because we, that is a lot of that education in pediatrics, whether it's trauma, whether it's airway sepsis, whatever is going on, it's compensate, compensate, compensate cliff Correct. as they completely fall off the back end. Yeah, and, and I think that's, that's true, but... You can see somebody who's going to respond. You can see when you, you're biding time, which is fine. Bide your time, watch them. Um, but there comes a point where stop denying it. You know, stop like, well, you know, one more neb treatment ought to do. No, you know, you, you're only going to get to the point where you're going to regret having waited too long. So I, I think you, you do have to not be uh, afraid to, to do the intubation. The other thing I think that that um, a lot of people think about is saying, oh my God, the intubation is so much harder in a kid. It's actually not. It's a lot easier than in, in an adult. I mean, you know, they, they, they haven't had 50 years of going to all-you-can-eat buffets, you know, to, to kind of make their airway a little bit more challenging. They're pretty straightforward. Uh, and, and I think with the, the, the proper attention to detail, uh, and you just want to be meticulous when you do it, they aren't that, that difficult to intubate. And a lot of times I would, I would talk to the people after it was done, and they'd say, that was a whole lot easier than I thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's, that's the, the thing. You know, don't put it off because you're afraid you might not be able to do it. You know, put it off because you think the kid might turn around. But once you've reached the point where they're not going to turn around, there's no value in delaying.
I actually feel like I've, I've I felt like you know with the pediatrics you're you're more nervous just because oh, of the absolutely child. yeah but in terms of the airway management getting the tube I've I've felt that pediatrics is is a lot easier especially the you know babies and, and the infants those that are really young um, quite e quite easier to intubate yeah and it's funny I, I um, there, there's a, a couple of, of people out there from the, the, the children's hospitals and and they'll tell me the, the same thing they'll say. If you're a general emergency physician, you've intubated way more people in the last year than we have, mm -hmm. you know. And and so, you know, the, the whole setup, the suction, the the um, positioning, and everything else is more second nature to your team than it may be to our team because we just don't do it. And in particular for emergency medicine, you know, if it's a kid that comes in an extremist or arrest, they do them. Most of the ones that potentially deteriorate slowly. They don't do them until they get up to the ICU because they are going to wait till that last possible minute. So I think as a general emergency physician, particularly in a community-based one, you got to feel more comfortable that you can manage this airway. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just let's transition because you have the, the two talks. Well, you get more now, but you know, two talks we want to feature here in this podcast. Um, you know, we talked about that airway management, but now let's put that in my setting as a community emergency physician in a hospital that doesn't admit pediatric patients. We see patients, we still got about 10% uh, pediatric population, uh, but you know, we're not an admitting place. We, we, we get a lot because, uh, a fair amount, because um, we, have an, we have OBGYN, so a lot of them are born there, and so the assumption is they can continue to come there. Um, let's talk about your topic with caring for the critically ill child in the community setting. Yeah, I tell you, Ryan, I am the exact same place. We used to, used to have a big inpatient unit. The vaccines came along. They did their job. We just don't, didn't have that many admissions anymore. Um, and so they closed our unit, which happened a lot throughout the, throughout the country. A lot of these PG units closed. So, but the patients still came to the um, emergency department. And the reality of it is, if you've got a, a child that's really sick or you know, you, your three-year-old is seizing, and you're going, you throw them in the back of your car because you don't need an ambulance to, to, to do it, and you're driving like hell, you're going to stop at the first big building with a red emergency sign in front of it. You're not going to decide whether it's a children's hospital or it's part of the EDAP system or anything else. It says emergency, and you got an emergency. We're going there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you, you got to be prepared for it. So you're going to see these kids. There's a number of differences when you see them in, in the community ED. I think one of the ones that people don't appreciate, especially if you work in a tertiary care center, you don't realize that in that community ED, very frequently there's one doc. You might have a doc and a PA or a doc and an MP, but there's a lot of that day where there's only one doc there. Um, and so that doc's got to manage that sick as hell kid and an entire department. And to that end, I think you need to move your care up and be a lot more aggressive with the kids at the front end. You know, when, when that sick kid comes in, get their IVs in, get their, their, um, uh, their fluid on board. You know, if, it, if there's any question about the airway, get it managed. Because sooner or later, at the same time you're managing that kid, somebody's gonna come in with a STEMI or a pulmonary edema, and you're gonna be juggling multiple things. If you've got your airway controlled and your line in, you can really manage that kid a little bit from a distance. You're always gonna keep ducking your head in the room and seeing how the kid's doing, but you know, if, if the, um, their sat drops, the nurse can say, hey, Ryan, the sat dropped on the kid, and you go, okay, uh, increase their FiO2 on the vent from 
60 to 70 or increase their rate to something like that. Mm -hmm. You can do that management from a distance. Their pressure dropped a little bit. Okay, um, you know, in, give another bolus of fluid, those types of, of things can be done uh, and you can still manage the rest of the department. And it also frees you up to do just kind of the medical management thinking through, what am I gonna do with this kid? Because you're not in the back of your head going, I gotta get an IV in this kid. I gotta get uh, an airway on this kid. You know, We, we need to um, drop an NG tube. Uh, I, somebody's gotta cast them for um, a urine. Get your procedures out of the way. You know, And then you can sit back and go, okay, now, now why does this kid have a weight count of 30,000? And you know, why is it, were they breathing 60 times a minute when they, when they came in here? You can start to work through that without having to worry about, you know, in the back of my mind, I got to go and, and do this one last procedure on, on uh, Twinkie over there. <laughs> so we, in my, in my last code that I had, pediatric code in our emergency department, came in through the front door um, and actually coded on the desk, you know, two-month-old, ended up, ended up with a couple of viruses uh, that caused it, but coded, respiratory failure code, and I come out and the nurse is doing uh, resuscitation CPR on the nursing station, on the desk itself. Right. And, you know, did, and that was it because it was, thankfully, our system had put together because we don't do a lot of critical care peds. We're like, you know, since we don't have a lot of reps, right. we need to make this as automatic as possible. So, you know, the entire kits, the entire drawers, everything just based on your, right. on your weights or links or, or whatever it may be, where they fall in the color code. And, um, you know, so within like one or two minutes, we had an, intra an intraosseous access. We had an intubation, got a culture out of that IO. Um, ended up, you know, getting the antibiotics, getting the fluids, doing everything. Kid actually ended up going home after a few days, did great. Sure. But it's one of those things that um, thankfully we were prepared, and that's kind of what I want to talk about next because we talked to uh, Dr. Gachi Hill before about the Pediatric Readiness Project. Mm -hmm. You know, as a community ED where you don't get those numbers of reps, like you talked about, you guys don't necessarily get the intubation reps in the PEDS system like we do in, in the general in terms of adults. How do you ensure that, that that community facility is ready to roll? What are some of the tips for these facilities to make sure that when it happens, you're not just trying to, you're trying to invent the wheel that moment? Yeah, I, I think that first and foremost, in, in terms of pediatric readiness, um, uh, Marianne uh, Gaucher-Hill and her team have put together a really, really nice checklist. You can go to the, you just Google pediatric readiness and it'll take you right to their their site, and you click on the, there's a couple links there, when you click on it, it says the checklist, and it's got everything there. It's like, you need these size ET tubes, you need these size laryngoscopes, you need this size IVs, you know, all that stuff that, and if you, you don't um, um, think about it, you, you, you may forget about the pediatric McGill, you may forget about some of the other stuff there. So just go to that list and, and you can just check off everything on it. And the other thing that's interesting about it, excluding the things like the monitor defibrillator, which you already have, um, uh, everything on that list costs you about a thousand bucks. And the nice thing about it is it's got stuff in, in there like uh, superglottic airways, the, the LMAs, the eye gels and stuff, which work just as well in kids as, it, as an intubation. So if you're really worried about it, you can drop one of these things in and, and they'll work just fine. So you have all the equipment there, number one. The other thing is um, we, we did this in New Jersey and we've been doing it for a while where the EMSC program would go to your site uh, and bring you some um, high-fidelity mannequins. Mm -hmm. but, but to be honest with you, these mannequins don't really matter. Um, and they'd run a code for it. They'd say, okay, you know, the mom just brought this baby in, they're cyanotic, whatever. 
And the nice thing about it, when we, when we used to do that, is um, actually Yale does it now on a national level. They've got a big study going on. Uh, they took over the project from us. Um, but what, what was nice about it was, it wasn't like you went to a PALS course where everything was laid out for you. It was in your shop, and you would ask for the stuff. The nurses or the techs or the doc would have to find it. It wasn't like, um, you know, you, we've all taken PALS and apples and those kind of mm -hmm. courses, and all the equipment's right in front of you, and they go, okay, let's see, intubate the mannequin. Now, this was stuff like, hey, we need this. And you would literally, and well, the first time we, saw, we did it at our shop, but I literally asked for, for something that was a little bit obtuse. And it looked like a, one of those old videos from I Love Lucy where she's pulling open drawers and throwing things open, trying to find the, the one thing that she's <laughs> looking for. And they, you know, they, they're like looking and looking and looking. It's like, OK, it's in the bottom drawer with all the other airways. It's a transtracheal jet ventilator. It's in the bottom drawer. That's where it is. And it was because the nurse said, this is great. Because you know what? We never, ever, ever have had to use this. But if we had to use it in this you know, uh, mock scenario. And that's, that's what happened. They said, like, and the, the, when they finished it, the, their final thing was, let's do it again. Let's do another one. Do another one. You know, because they, they liked the idea of being forced to look for that stuff. And there's a real difference between, okay, I've got, you know, I've got the, the beds two, three, four, and eight, and that's the, my responsibility to check the peds cart, and you're just going to check the peds cart. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between that and, hurry up, get me this, hurry, hurry up. You know, and if, if you're doing it correctly, you don't do it in a calm fashion like we normally would. You, you do it in a panicked fashion for them. It's like, oh my God, oh my God, where is it? Where is it? Where, will somebody get me this? You know, and, and people are throwing stuff at you. It's like, you know, they, they, they've got a, an adult-sized mask. It's like, that's the wrong mask, you know, those types of things. Um, but that's what's great about it is, you know, you, you know, when we do it, we're much calmer. We try and keep the place a little calmer. But, you know, to do those kind of things, it's really, really the way you do it is like, get some reps in there. You know, it's like anything else. There, there is the reality of there's a mental um, muscle memory that goes along with these kind of things. You know, and that whole group that couldn't find the transtracheal jet ventilator will never forget where it is again now, unless one of the techs moves it, which isn't unusual. Yeah, yeah, let's say we just decided to re reorganize <laughs> yeah. the closet for the fourth time this yeah. month. Um, and I, I, th I think that's fantastic, you know, putting them on tilt, you know, panic, that way we're getting that brainstem thinking as opposed to getting up, up high and that, you know, the, that yep. critical thinking side of things. Um, you know, as we talk about that critical care pediatric patient, um, give us, you know, as we kind of get close to the end here, uh, some of the kind of the, the pearls and pitfalls for most of our docs that are sitting out there that, you know, kind of dealing with the fact that the hospital says we're not a pediatric center and, and those types of things. Right. I, I think, you know, you can't let them get away with we're not a pediatric center because you're going to get the cases no matter what. So you, you got to have the equipment. Um, there's a couple weird things like the prostaglandins for um, kids with ductal lesions and stuff. You're, those are, are incredibly expensive, and you'll use one maybe every 20 years. So make a deal with one of the, um, the, the local children's centers that, you know, you'll buy it. When it gets like three months from being expired, you'll ship it to them, and they'll give you a new um, one so you can do an exchange type thing. Because otherwise, you can't afford to, to buy one of them every time they're, they're about to expire. But the other thing I think is really important is, in addition to your procedures, be aggressive with your medical management as well. Because if you do a lot up front, when you call your consultant to move the patient to the tertiary care center or to get advice, um, you've eliminated all the things that the consultant's going to tell you to do. So say you got a kid with a status epilepticus. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you, you've, you've run through a bunch of benzos, you've given them um, 
some um, Kepra, you've given him some um, propofol. The kid's still seizing. The labs are back. The kid's not hyponatremic. You maybe gave him pyridoxine or something like that. So it's, a, it's a newborn or it's an infant. Now your consultant's on the phone. You, you got to get this kid out of there. You've already gone through all the stuff, the basic and the advanced stuff, and now the consultant can say, huh, all right, let's see where we go from here, versus you give the benzos and then you call them. Mm -hmm. And then they're going, okay, well, let's try giving you know, this, and then we'll give that one. We'll the idea is you engage your consultant way further down any algorithm that you're going to deal with. And it's the dehydrated kid, the hypotensive kid, whatever the, the scenario is, be aggressive about it. You know, be an ER doc about it. Uh, and then you're going to w really, really be able to, to show that consultant, I've got all this done. Now you're going to have to really help me along because we're way past where we're, you're used to engaging uh, a, an ER doc along the way. So I think that, that makes a big difference as well. Uh, and then the other thing is control your consultants. You know, when, when they call back, a lot of them are going to want to ramble on about this and that. And no, listen, this is where we are. Don't tell me what to do because I've already done it. You know, what's the next step? You, 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 a lot of them like to, to pontificate. It's like pontificate when the kid's in your department. We've already done all this. Let's go next, and let's you know, and then expedite getting them to your place. I, I, I will tell you, I, I had a kid day before uh, last in here. This kid comes in, two month old, like you said, but this one's like sick as hell, but still breathing and whatnot. Joined us and it vomits a bunch of bile cover, colored vomit, which is like the red flag for a um, mid gut volvulus, mm -hmm. you know, because that, that, that's like the, the, the big red flag for it. So we, we get the lines in, we get the kid. Um, uh, fluid resuscitated, and the kid perks up and looks a little bit better. So I call the local PICU, and the you know it's like, listen, I gotta expedite getting this kid over to you because I'm really worried about this. And the intensivist there starts asking me all these questions. It's like, you know, uh, what color hair do they have? You know, uh, were they wearing a pink or a blue onesie? You know, you know, what was the name of the priest that baptized the kid? I'm like, God Almighty, woman, you know, I need to get this kid over there. So. Finally, she decides the kid's not that sick. I'm like, this kid is potentially going to die from this. Uh, she goes, no, why, why don't you give it to the floor pediatrician? I'm like, no, this kid ain't going to the floor pediatrician. So I'm going to, okay, I bypass you. Give me the pediatric surgeon. Pediatric surgeon gets on. She says, what do you got? I said, I got a two-month-old who's got bilious vomiting. And she goes, stop. Get him over here as fast as you can. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> you know, this is the consultant I've been looking for. She goes, your, your discussion ended as soon as you said bilious vomiting mm -hmm. in a two-month-old. Get him over here. And so, like, she's the ideal um, consultant. The other one was just like, you know, oh, I want to learn all the little details. I'm like, no, you're kind of missing the big picture here, lady. So it's really interesting what you get when you call your consultant sometimes. So how can folks get in touch with you? Contact information, of course, if you're not... Uh, don't catch the talks here at ASEP 22. Um, you know, by the time this was released, they're all going to be done. But yeah. hopefully you caught it. But if not, um, you know, check out the virtual ASEP options, ways to get the lectures down the road. Of course, I think the pediatric assembly is coming back. And I, I think we're finally going live this year. Again. Yeah, I think, I think we are, which yeah. will be fun. It'll be fun to get them back there again. And we'll definitely, because I'll, I'll have to get down there and get some good recording done down there again, because I enjoyed it last time. You got it. Ryan, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. What kind of contact information you got for us? Uh, I would say the best way to get a hold of me is through the email. It's uh, A. Sacchetti. It's A-S-A-C-C-H-E-T-T-I at virtua, V-I-R-T-U-A.org. 
All right. I appreciate it. As for me, you can contact me at rstantonacep.org, rstantonacep.org, or at Everyday Med on Twitter. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline. If you're not on the front lines, you're on the sidelines.